Welcome to the PMPA Speaking of Precision podcast, featuring your host, Miles Free. Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA Speaking of Precision, Monday with Miles. Greg Knight has joined us today, and we are going to reflect on the changes that he has seen and helped to introduce to our industry and what might be coming up ahead. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks, Miles. Great to be here. Greg Knight is the Vice President of Sales for Production Turning at PMPA member Absolute Machine Tools. Greg has been a frequent presenter at PMPA's National Technical Conference and highly rated. We always invite him back. I know that you have trod through the valley of the shadow of precision machining, Greg, for a long, long time. I know that you had your own shop, so you're very familiar with family business as well as the machining business. And I know that you are both a hands-on expert with cam machines, but you're the guy that helped usher in the era of CNC controls onto our existing cam machines back in the day. Now you're helping shops figure out the economics of machining in parallel time using that CNC technology. So why don't you give our listeners a bit of history into the making of Greg Knight? Well, I started out my machining industry career, uh, basically deburring parts uh, for my dad in the evenings after school. Uh, it, it was indeed a family business, and uh, he started out, as many people did uh, back in that time, with a one machine in his garage and cut a hole in the garage door to feed the stock through. Um, it, it does happen. So were you about eight or nine de deburring parts? Uh, probably uh, not that young, maybe t 12 to 14 when I okay. started. Okay, okay. I uh, went away. Uh, my, my intention was really never to uh, be deeply involved in the family business. Uh, my college degrees are in philosophy, religion, and sociology and psychology. Uh, and I've never done a thing with that and done nothing but run businesses and uh, do engineering ever since. Well, you believe in machines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So the machine shop was all brownies with a lot of manual secondary equipment. Uh, once uh, my dad's health failed a little bit and my mom persuaded me to come into the business, I began working on learning how to set up the machines, um, unfortunately how to tear them apart and repair them because that's what you had to do back then. That was never my forte. Uh, eventually we grew, um, my father passed away in 1983 when I was 29. And in the next 15 years or so, we about uh, we tripled the size of the building, quadrupled uh, the size of the business, and really never missed a profitable year except for the year we built the building. In 1998, actually a little before that, we became the first guinea pigs for the ServoCam product. Um, working with an engineering company, uh, they approached me with this idea and at first I said, it's not going to work because brown and sharp people are just going to say CNC is too slow because historically that was the truth. And after some work with them, they convinced me to uh, 
come along on the ride. By 98, once we'd run them for a couple of years, uh, my mom wanted out of the business, and so we sold the business to the employees and an outside investor, and I went to work and launched the ServoCam product. I grew that business for the next 15 years or so. Uh, at the very end of that, we took on the Lyco line as the importer and ran that business for a few years. Found out it's uh, not a great idea to be a single machine importer. <laughs> um, that, that's not the best business plan in the world. Specialization was not your friend. <laughs> yes. So uh, Absolute asked us to become a distributor for the product. In no time, they were selling more of them than we were, and it was obvious to the other investors and I what needed to happen, and we sold that business to Absolute, and I've been working for them ever since. That's that's quite a story. So you went from having to learn, having to learn to run and rebuild cam machines to helping actually implement and introduce CNC controls on cam machines and now helping people replace cam machines with CNC equipment that can really outperform, outproduce uh, that, that past technology. So that's clearly a revolution. You've witnessed several of these revolutions in our industry. Customer needs. I know you're in Southern Ohio. Uh, I'm thinking about NCR and cash registers when you talk about brownies. Um, in materials, used to be all free machining materials. Now our listservs, we get calls for stainlesses some of us never even heard of. The tooling's changed and you're, you're selling these, these Lyco machines. Now even the machine tools have changed. How, how is it that you dealt with these major changes, these major shifts? And what lessons did you learn or can you share with us of, as we try and face all this uncertainty that, that I mean, well, look at 2020. I mean, it's just, it's an uncertain world. So what did you take from that? First, I just want to say I find it amusing that you mentioned NCR because we literally ran parts for NCR at our old cam shop with those machines. In fact, a good deal of that work was the office machine technology. And that changed with computerization. And that made a huge change in that cam machine industry. It became more, more plumbing and... and marine products, a variety of things. So listeners, just because a couple old baby boomers here chat, chattering, a cash register is a mechanical device that adds up the transaction value and makes a total. And when Greg talks about business machines, he's talking about things like an addressograph, a multigraph, maybe even a ditto machine. Uh, before there were Xeroxes, before there were word processors, I don't think there were even sp spreadsheets in those days. Labeling machines, uh, literally the old mechanical credit card transaction machines, we made specialty screws that went into those. So uh, the world that you know electronically that glows, <laughs> we know through specialty screws and little cam shafts and parts. So go on, Greg. So you, you, 
you asked about uh, some of the changes. I, I mean, obviously, technology has changed things tremendously. The interesting thing is customer needs have also changed. And they've changed in a sense of uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to make products that the customers want to buy on some of these CAM machines because they've uh, decreased the tolerances, they've uh, decreased the surface, or increased, however you want to put it, the right. surface finish requirements. They've reduced the lot sizes, so you have to be faster, leaner, better, and that's that's a challenge in and of itself, and that's a challenge, you know, one of the most important things besides technology, it's still very much a requirement for people, and people have to manage these changes, and they have to deal with those changes on the shop floor. Yeah, it's uh, a people business, there's no doubt about it. You could probably sell a lot more machines if you could bundle an operator or two along. I hear that almost every week. So, Greg, you went from being an expert, really competent in cam machining, to help usher in CNC controls via retrofits, the servo cam uh, for, for Brown and Sharps. How did you feel about that? What was the resistance that you had to deal with? And how do we recognize that resistance as we're going forward looking at all the new developments in, in our future today? The shops that adopted this, the, the, the leaders, what made them different than the laggards that chose to stay behind? One of the primary things is that they recognized they needed to get better at what they were doing. And many of them had uh, adapted, uh, you know, quick change tooling and uh, better setup procedures but they still had to change all the cams. And, they, and they, uh, if there was a new job, it had to be either engineered from existing cams or they had to wait for a set of cams. And sometimes they, they would lose a job because they, they, they couldn't make it fast enough. The advent of the servo cam really it reduced the cycle time for a bunch of technical reasons I'm not even gonna get into. Um, it, it reduced the setup time it simplified the brown and sharps so that you no longer had to have this four-year college equivalent degree of learning to be able to set one up. Right. So the, the power, though, that I heard is you said the servo cam, it, it reduced the cycle time, and we all know that's what we sell. We sell time on our machines. But more importantly, if I've eliminated changing cams, I've just really reduced my setup time, and I don't get paid for setup time. Now, the servo cams probably cut a lot of people's setup time in half if they really applied themselves even a little more. The, the, this, the skepticism that I saw out there was, so we really began commercially with the servo cams in 98, so already, a CNC salesman had been telling the screw machine guys for 20 years, I wasn't a CNC salesman at the time, I was on the hearing end of that, you. you have to get with the times, you're going to get left behind. And the question was always, 
what kind of cycle time can you run these parts in? And the answer was always five times as slow as what you're running them now. <laughs> and that just simply wasn't acceptable. Uh, you couldn't do it and make money. Now, those CNC lays, those earlier ones, of course, could make some specialty parts and, and some much more difficult parts that we couldn't make on the screw machines. And so they definitely found their place in shops. Right. But it wasn't really apples to apples. And a five, five times price penalty, um, that's, that's a pretty high bar. Yes. Most shops are not running at an 80% margin. Late. None of them. Pass the bourbon. <laughs> that was a good joke. So the servo cam was a good run, but it led to the identification, I guess, of a larger need. Uh, the new tech has been inexorable. It, it's been coming. So it's no longer about, do I do the cheap retrofit? You really need to invest in the technology in order to be sustainable as a business. What, what's missing in our thinking that keeps us focused on cheap instead of recognizing the value? What, 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 what is there about us as, as, as buyers or as humans that we're looking for the cheap way and not necessarily the best solution? Well, I, I think to a point, that's the challenge in selling tech, period. Screw machine people are notoriously skeptical anyway. It's prove it to me, show it to me. Sure. And it's a bit more difficult to do because there's no one thing that you can point out and say, here's the, you know, here's the one ring to rule them all. The one um, ring, yes. It's it's a, it's a value add, but th there are so many factors there. Uh, there's quality, there's cleanliness, uh, there's this, a cycle time decrease. Uh, setup the, time decrease? Setup time decrease. There's the ability to do back work that had to be done by hand off of many of those machines. Cross drilling, you can do those on the brownies, but cross tapping is a little bit more of a challenge. Not that it can't be done. Um, and, and so you have to be able to demonstrate value to people um, on this whole package. It's not just one thing you can point to and say, here it is, here's why you ought to buy my product. It's not just one feature, it's a suite of features. So it requires holistic thinking, right? Not just, yes. you know, oh, I, I see that. So um, market cycles have really been uh, crazy over your career. Um, the cycles are really about the kind of products that we build in our shops. What do you think the trends are that are shaping up for us that are going to require us to rethink our technology and, and our approach to our business in the, in the near future? Well, the, the most obvious one, and it's already here, it's not just in the future, is limited labor resources. Most Can people, I have an amen? <laughs> most people that know what to do with these machines are my age. And I believe, I think the PMPA did a survey about 10 years ago and identified the average setup person, I, I believe this was in a multi-spindle shop, was 55, which means now they're 65. And I hear this weekly, maybe almost daily, from people 
I don't know what I'm going to do. We, we, we don't have people to run these. Nobody wants to come in and start running these when they see these other machines over here running and they're not standing in a pool of oil or, or, or a bunch of floor dry on the floor. These other ones are safer, they're cleaner, they're, they're neater. And the, the thing that I'm finding more and more, we're finding they're actually more productive, particularly in terms of manpower per part. Sure, I, I can see that. So does that mean that there's going to be, if we can't get those cycle times that we get on the cam machines, does that mean there's just going to be price pressure? Because if nobody can make the parts on a cam machine, here's your price, here's, here's what we bid. So what we have found is that um, for parts that run 20 to 30 seconds on a cam machine, mm -hmm. We can run those a bit more productively. I won't say heads and tails, but a bit more productively. What you get from that is, um, again, quick, quicker setup time. Uh, you get a better quality part. Things that are over 30 seconds, we can usually actually beat the cycle times because normally you're using high-speed form tools, and we've got all carbides in there. And as the, okay. as the material gets tougher, we look better. When you get to a part that's running a couple of minutes on a brownie, uh, and there are parts out there that do that, we can sometimes reduce that to well under a minute. For the stuff that's 20 seconds and under, that's still a tough one. Things in that 15 to 20 second, sometimes we can do something about. When it gets under 15 seconds, that, that's a part that's really difficult. So take, for instance, a double O part that's running in six seconds. I am not aware of, other than going to a, a, a multi-spindle or a hydromat type transfer machine, I'm not aware of any single spindle CNC who can touch those kind of cycle times, and you're just not going to. It's not the world we live in. Well, I don't know how you're going to pay for the investment on a hydromat or a multi-spindle <laughs> for a six-second part. I'm just, I'm sorry, that's, that's, I don't believe that. I believe in Santa, but the, I don't believe that. Well, well, the interesting part is it's not just cycle time, even though I know that's what all of us screw machine people have lived and died with. It's the cycle time. It's the reduced setup time. It's the off-shift hours that you can get because you're running bar loaders now, and you've got a machine that can sit there and hold tolerances on a part without being tended. It's the ability for one person to tend several of these machines. Those are the kinds of things that make them more productive, not necessarily just the cycle time. So I think you just found your one thing. It is, it's product, productive, it's, it's productivity, that that is the one thing. And it's not just looky there, it's hey, I've got better finish. I'm using single point, not a form tool. It doesn't look like I clawed this part out of railroad iron, right? I've got bar loaders. I'm getting time. Simplest form of automation. And Absolutely. automation, of course, you, you, you asked me about the, the market cycles and fit. automation, which again was is driven by limited labor. To be honest, if, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but if all the playing fields were equal, the country or set of machines being run with the least labor wins. 
and this is how you minimize the labor involved in, per part. Right. I, I like to look at that, that question a different way. I think that our labor, our talent, I use the word performers. I don't think you've ever heard me utter the E word, the employee word. Uh, our performers need to operate at their highest and best use. And that doesn't mean schlepping parts around, picking parts off and chucking them and putting them in and, and handling them. It's to set up these automatic machines to be sure that they're functioning to the tolerance and let the doggone robot or the conveyor or whatever move the doggone part. I absolutely agree about human value of, you know, the, of human beings. When we go into shops after they've been running these machines for a while and talk to the employees, there's such a pride of, look at what we're making. They, I mean, I, I walk in there and they're like, oh, you know, have you seen it? You know, we can do this. I, I figured this, and I get an education all the time because I didn't run so many of these machines. Uh, I, I, that was a little later in my life cycle. Um, and, and so I learn from our customers all the time new things that they've developed to do on these. And frequently when I bring someone in for a visit, uh, you know, a sales visit, I just turn them over to the employee and I walk away and let them talk to them. Because, yeah, and, and admire the jewelry they're making, whether exactly. it, you wear it inside yeah, or yeah, out. Exactly. So, Greg, uh, a lot of our businesses are family-owned, closely held machining businesses. You started out your story in a family-owned machining business as a 12-year-old deburring parts. Now you find yourself and your talents in a family-owned machine tool distributor business, and you're sharing your expertise with a lot of family-owned machining businesses on sales calls and through your work here at PMPA. As one of the family of machining manufacturers throughout your career, uh, what do you think that most buyers and owners get wrong about dealing with suppliers, vendors? You've been a buyer, you've been an owner, you've, you're on both sides of that. So what is it that we're doing wrong when we deal with our supply base? Well, and I won't say most people do this, but a lot of people still play that adversarial game. You know, where you're trying to beat me out of my money by selling me something, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, we're on your side. Let us help. That's the biggest thing that, that I would say. And, you know, there is a sense. So you need to get through the door. You need to get some trust we're in the business of helping people engineer success, not just selling machine tools. We're in the business of helping people engineer success, not just selling machine tools. Well, I think we have our pull quote for our podcast. Yes. Absolute Machine Tools brand promise is cost-effective engineered solutions, guaranteed. So that's custom engineered. That's not just off the shelf. No, we have some what I will call standard machine tools that it's a lathe, it's a mill, it does certain things. The production turning equipment, uh, which is kind of the, the Lycos, the, our QuickTech line, the next turns, 
those are almost always engineered solutions. Uh, those are things where people have a need and they come to us and say, can you help us make this? Right. So there's, uh, there's some special engineering, maybe some work developing tools, uh, definitely uh, almost a turnkey solution. Yeah. Training. Training. <laughs> human. It's the human. <laughs> those pesky humans. Last question, Greg. I've really enjoyed this. Um, so the last question is kind of a twist. I'm giving you the chance to ask everyone in our industry a question, not to tell them something, but to ask them a question to help them think, to help them focus, to help them discover, to make a difference. So what's the question you'd ask all of us? as we sign off on our podcast today. What's your question? My question would be, and I know it's very difficult to do because you're in the weeds. My question would be, think seriously about what are you gonna do? How are you going to handle things over the next five to 10 years? Because everything that we've seen change for the last 10 or 20 years, that's gonna get quicker, 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 and if you're not stepping back once in a while and looking at that, so ask yourself, what are you going to do? What's your plan? What's your plan for an uncertain future? Thank you, Greg. That's certainly a thought worth pondering. That wraps up today's podcast. Thank you, Greg and Absolute Machine Tool for joining us. Greg, how did you like podcasting? Actually, it was fun. It was fun. And uh, I was pleased to know that I got to explain what a cash register was <laughs> to some of our listeners. Thank you, listeners, for joining us as well. For additional information, please visit pmpa.org. While you're on pmpa.org, you can check out our new website with the robust search features and find articles, webinars, podcasts like this one, and other resources to help you sustain your precision machining business. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. You don't want to miss one. Are you a PMPA member? If so, you know the benefits and assistance that we have to offer. If you're not, be sure to check out pmpa.org to see all we have to offer. And why, Greg Knight, is a PMPA membership important? Because, because we, we are, are better, better together. together. Don't forget to join us next Monday on Speaking of Precision, Monday with Mars.